Hello and welcome to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today on our show... Science is real from the band They Might Be Giants comes to the defense of science. They've got a new album of science songs for kids, and they're bringing their Here Comes Science show to Santa Cruz this week. We'll talk to John Flansburg of They Might Be Giants in the first part of our program today. We'll listen to some songs, discuss the delights and challenges of educational songwriting for kids, and maybe even learn a little science. Then in the second half of the show, a musical tour of the planets. And this ain't no Gustav Holst. I mean a new planetary song cycle from the ever-inventive two-man songwriting team, One Ring Zero. We'll hear from One Ring Zero co-founder Michael Hurst and listen to some celestial tunes. That's all ahead. From anatomy to geology, science is real. From and now on to part one of our show. First, a word with my mom, who knows a thing or two about teaching science to kids. Mom, do you remember when I was young, you used to sing these songs uh, that had to do with science? Oh, yeah. Do you remember any of them? Oh, sure. It goes, the sun is a mass of incandescent gas, a gigantic nuclear furnace where hydrogen is built into helium at a temperature of millions of degrees. Yo-ho, it's hot. The sun is hot. Not a place where we could live, but here on Earth, there'd be no life without the light it gives. We need its light, we need its heat, we need its energy. Without the sun, without a doubt, there'd be no you and me. When you were teaching elementary school kids, did you use those songs? I did, and I... I um you know, would teach them some of the songs, and then I would play them sort of as background music while they were doing other stuff, thinking that <laughs> the ideas might soak in. And, you know, I've always loved science, and so they had a lot of fun. I mean, they, they sang them with me, and they, as I say, listened to them. Kids actually learned from them? Sure. Oh, absolutely. So the kids would maybe sing them back and say, oh, yeah, that's yeah. what the sun is. And, and I would take a lot of time to explain them, of course, and uh, to, you know, to elaborate on them so that I, I don't know that everybody got the concepts, but I know everybody got some of the concepts, mm -hmm. let's put it that way. And some of the kids, of course, just grooved on it. Well, that was then. This is now. And guess what? The kids are still grooving on it. The sun is a mass of incandescent gas, a gigantic nuclear furnace, where hydrogen is built into helium at a temperature of millions of degrees. Yo-ho, it's hot, the sun is not a place where we could live, but here on Earth there'd be no life without the light it gives. We need its light. That is They Might Be Giants, with their updated version of Why Does the Sun Shine? That, by the way, is the name of the song, and it appeared originally on a 60s-era album called Space Songs. It featured science songs for children, sung by folk singers Tom Glazer and Dottie Evans. It was part of that Sputnik-inspired push for science literacy back in those days. Then, in the late 1990s, John Flansburg and John Linnell, a.k.a. They Might Be Giants, came out with their rendition of the song, punked out and suitable for moshing. It became a fan favorite. And now in 2010, they've covered it again in their new album, Here Comes Science, which attempts to do for today's kids what space songs did for previous generations. It's a CD and DVD set. It has songs and animations touching on subjects in biology, chemistry, physics, astronomy, even scientific method. And They Might Be Giants will be performing selections from Here Comes Science this coming Friday at the Rio Theater in Santa Cruz. I got a chance to speak to John Flansburg about the album and the show. Um, did you guys, you and John Linnell, have an album called Space Songs when you were kids? We didn't own this record. It was actually uh, in the public library uh, where we hung out. Um, oh, you hung out there, huh? 
Well, we grew up in a pretty small town, and um, the public library was actually like a, a pretty common place for kids to hang out because mm-hmm. uh, it was one of the few public buildings. Um, it also gets extremely cold in New England uh, in the wintertime, so you can't exactly just hang out outside. So um, it was a place where a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, unlibrary-like activities took place. But needless to say, the limited record collection of the public library was extremely uh, well-examined by all the children, tweens, and teenagers of the town. Okay, so because you couldn't, uh, say, get Alice Cooper LPs there, you listened to Why Does the Sunshine instead? Yeah, they had a they had a whole bunch you know they had a whole bunch of kind of curious records uh, in that in that record library. <laughs> but uh, you guys you guys rarely do covers, but you did choose to cover uh, this song about um, the actual uh, mechanism by which the sun shines. Yes, yes. Uh, we rarely do covers, but people tend to like the covers we do more than the songs that we write. So oh, it's, that's it's not little, true. That's that not probably true. curbs our our number of covers. You know, just because it hurts our feelings, how well they go over. That can't be true. And we're going to talk about a lot of original songs okay. uh, in this conversation. But I'd like to fast forward from the days when uh, Why Does the Sunshine came out to your current album, Here Comes yep. Science. And I uh, wanted to play the opening song, the, the um, sure. maybe the, the theme song, Science is Real. Science is real from the You know, it struck me when listening to this um, that it's kind of a polemic. It says, I like stories about angels, unicorns, and elves, but the facts are with science. Um, you wouldn't have had to make that statement, I think, to kids uh, back in the day when space songs came out. I mean, you wouldn't have to convince them, do you think? Maybe not. You know, um, it's interesting to see how that song has been uh, taken in, because there are a lot of people in the scientific community who really celebrate it because they feel like it's just kind of laying it out, you know, it's just, it's just like, let's not, let's not get caught up in it. I think the lyric is actually, is, is, is more sincere uh, than, it, than it might come off. The truth of the matter is that we've been, we've spent most of our adult lives and, and probably all of our uh, childhood lives obsessed with myths and fantasy and just kind of swimming around in a whole bunch of uh, crazy ideas and and uh, and and psychedelic impulses and that is that is what we like you know we like we in, as it says in the lyrics like we like that stuff as much as anybody else um, but that doesn't change the fact that we we live in uh, a physical world that that seems to be run by a, a series of of laws science is real and that and then that song sums it up and. Uh, and we weren't we weren't trying to uh, belittle issues of faith um, uh, or or the world of the imagination, which is and are both things that are interesting as well. Well, well what's what struck me though is that um, it's a sign of the times that that someone would even have to make the statement that science is real. Um, I guess I guess that's true. And you know, it's also funny is that in the way the song has been received, a lot of people felt like we were courting controversy. Um, uh, but no one, no one uh, from the the sort of uh, opposite point of view has really challenged the song. <laughs> so you know, it's it's almost like there's a preemptive uh, idea of of cultural censorship over the idea of uh, you know talking about something like that so directly, uh, especially I guess for kids. You know, you you are the invited guest into into parents and children's world when you're doing kids music, and you know we don't take that. Um, responsibility lightly but at the same time uh, you know we also have a responsibility to ourselves and a responsibility to um uh, the culture and and uh yeah i mean i i don't know i i feel like the song represents itself pretty well and the more i talk about it the deeper a hole i dig for myself <laughs> well i was gonna say um 
Uh, oh, by the way, it uh, it even has a little section on uh, experimentation and scientific methods, so it really does cover a lot of bases. Well, thank you. Yes, the, uh, the, the action-packed second verse pretty much describes the difference between a scientific theory and just people's popular notion of what a theory is, which is a, a very, um, you know, it, it often is... is Wild-ass guess. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's just a, a way that people dismantle uh, the validity of science in this, in this very cavalier and, and kind of uh, uh, two-dimensional rhetorical way. You know, a scientific theory is very different than just, you know, some, some, somebody's guess. So, um, and then and I, I was glad that we got the, that in there as well. Now, I was thinking, though, that if any song on this album was going to get you guys um, banned uh, in certain Bible Belt schools, it is My Brother the Ape. And uh, I want to play a bit of that right now. Sure. I received the photos you sent, and I don't regret that I went or the sight of everybody still. So this one, My Brother the Ape, from your new album, Here Comes Science, is obviously about evolution. The, the storyline is a, a guy gets invited to a family reunion-type picnic. And, uh, in oh, a t- Robert, in- it's worse than that. <laughs> um, the, the, uh, the song puts forward the notion that, that all uh, living things are related to one another, which is you know, not, not, just, not just that we're actually directly related to apes, um, but, you know, we're related to, uh, I mean, as, as the song ex- you just heard explored. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's very unsettling. for. Uh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm trying to contain my outrage even as I speak. Um, I know. And, uh, but at this family reunion picnic are all kinds of critters uh, that this guy is related to, and he has a hard time buying that this ape is his brother until he... Uh, you know, observes that there's more similarity between him and the chimp than there is between him and his cousin, the shrimp, yes. to, to whom he's also related. So yes. a nice little lesson in, in evolution for kids. And, um, you know, again, this one, if you're courting controversy, it's probably this one. Again, it strikes me that back well, in the... Well, you say that, but I mean, you know, the, it, as, as I've, uh, I'd like to point out in the past, um, <laughs> you know, these aren't things that we... These aren't just things that we think should be taught in schools. These actually are things that are taught in schools. So there is, there is, there is no controversy about evolution in, uh, among uh, the scientific world. Um, so, it, you, know, you, you, can, you know, you can make all the arguments you want against um, evolution. And I think, I think, as politicians ought to say, um, you know, there's only one set of facts. And, uh, and, and evolution is... Uh, has has held up pretty well over the years. Um, oh, oh, indeed. You sound like uh, Clarence Darrow, and and you know, I was thinking that I you... feel like Clarence Darrow. I just wish I was dressed like Clarence Darrow. <laughs> well, sir, um, I thought you had settled the matter in the Scopes trial back in what was it, the nineteen well, twenties. Yeah. But but uh, you know, it has been with continual amazement that I've observed this thing become quote unquote a controversy in the modern era. So it's just interesting to me that. In a children's album about science, you depict a character who's having trouble with this concept uh, and, and overcoming that trouble. So again, it seems like your your album, Here Comes Science. Uh, am I getting too pedantic? I think I am. But it, but it is. Uh, but it is. It is a, again a, a real indicator of, of where you know we've come as as a culture here in America with regard to science. That that that, that these things are even having to be restated. You know. 
I, I guess so. But, you know, I mean, evolution is a big topic in, in science. So, uh, you know, it wasn't like we could, we were just going to ignore the actual 800-pound gorilla <laughs> in the room. Um, you have kids. You, you and John Linnell both have kids. Uh, I have kids in my life. I actually, I don't, I, I, have, I have not uh, fathered a child now. Oh, okay. But John Linnell has a, a, a 10-year-old son. Okay. Well, there's, there's kids in the They Might Be Giants family. Yes. I was just wondering if the presence of kids in your life is what got you guys in, into, the, into the business of, uh, oh, you're in the kitchen, are you, John? I'm in the kitchen. I'm pouring myself another cup of coffee and ignoring the, uh, the phone ringing and the beeping buzzer. Okay, you do uh, that. Um, but, uh, you know, I, it would be, uh, it would be uh, heartwarming to say that it was uh, the, the kids in our lives that kind of uh, started it. But the truth of the matter is, I think we we both feel kind of weird, uh, you know, pushing this stuff on the people around us. I think I think the what it really what was really most pleasant about the whole uh, entree into the world of kids' music is just writing, getting back to writing songs in the abstract. You know, when you're when you're first make, you know when you're first putting your group together and you're talking about like what's possible and and what what you can do, things are very kind of pie in the sky and you've never played in front of an audience and and it's just your that formative period is really is really interesting um and then the more you play in front of audiences the more you realize that performance is you know can it has a, a very uh it's very hard to to break out of that the, the that set of rules but what's what it's hard to get back to is kind of your beginner's mind and uh, at, when you're when you're just conceiving of of you know the unlimited potential of uh, what's possible in in writing a song, and what's interesting about writing for kids, or what was a, a great uh, opportunity for us, is it really uh, sort of uh, reshuffled the deck for us. You know, all of a sudden we were very aware that the audience that we were writing for had no cultural references. Um, they don't know anything about the history of rock music, or you know, what. There is no such thing as a, a cliche to someone who's never heard a Bo Diddley beat before. You mm-hmm. know, it's just like we can be the ambassadors of the Bo Diddley beat, <laughs> a generation of kids, and um, you know that's that's you know kind of a, a way to. It, it just all made us feel um, young again. Yeah, young again. Kind <laughs> of re. Uh, we just we could just reimagine everything we were doing in the most positive kind of way so I, I think you guys have always had what a lot of us would call a very kid-like um approach to music in the in, in the best sense that is playful uh convention be damned be nonsensical or goofy uh or 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 maybe there's a hidden logic but it's 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 not adult logic you know in some of the lyrics we keep it very well hidden <laughs> exactly <laughs> so what was fascinating to me is to see in these kid songs you guys who already turned out music that was uh, very kid like in some ways and appealing to kids i know lots of kids who are fans of your so-called non-kid music is in, in your kid music you actually got a little more straightforward in the lyrics uh and and less goofy a little more disciplined for instance let's let's just listen to another of these teaching songs meet the elements Neon's a gas that lights up the sign for a pizza place The coins that you pay with are copper, nickel, and zinc Silicon and oxygen make concrete, bricks, and glass Now add some gold and silver for some pizza place class Come on, come on and meet the elements I think you should check out the ones that call the elements Like a Full of helium, and so is every star. Stars are mostly hydrogen, which may someday fuel your car. Hey, land in all these elephants. Did you know that elephants are made of elements? Elephants are mostly 
made of four elements and every living thing is mostly made of four elements plants bugs birds fish bacteria you know i think uh, in many ways um uh, what you're seeing with They Might Be Giants in the last couple of years doing educational material is uh, a, very, uh, a very prime example of the Peter Principle, uh, <laughs> where uh, people who are not qualified to tell anybody about anything are suddenly pushed forward into the role <laughs> of educators. Um, but uh, it's different writing a, an album with a science theme. Uh, we, we, I think it, we had to change our, our mode. But we really, you know, we enjoy the, the full range of things. I think, you know, we've, we've always written more serious songs than, than, any, than any critique would ever indicate. You know, I think people in our audience sort of were aware that, that we were sort of ambitious about the scope of what we were doing. But, um, yeah, it, you know, I think, I think just trying to find a way for, for the spirit of humor to really land in a, in, and still be a successful song that that was probably the most difficult thing for us to kind of crack you know because humor and and music are not an, are not really maybe as such a natural fit and it always strikes me it's so strange how even the most revolutionary comic material ends up sounding so dated i mean i guess it's true of uh, to music to a certain degree but i feel like i feel like you know music music tends to hold up to repeated listening better, at least in the, in the short term. I was just watching some uh, a DVD of SCTV on the tour bus with the, the fellows in the band, and and you know I just I think of that as being almost you know the the Laurie Anderson of comedy. You know, it just seems so um, meta and self-aware that I just assumed it would um, hold up, huh? Hold up really well, and yeah. in fact, it it seemed really dated. Uh-huh. Are you saying that? You know, some of this, I'll call it surreality uh, of your lyrics in the past, um, that approach of not quite making sense tends to stand up better, do you think, over time? I think we were trying to find a balance of, um, you know, just getting back to like the difference between a live show and a recording. You know, I mean, I remember early on we did it, we had this song called um, Hideaway Folk Family, which is a, a, a strange kind of menacing song on our very first album. And there was this big break in the middle of the song we would actually have it's a very quiet song and in the middle of the song we would we would instruct the audience to scream as if they were in hell and it was this complete uh dramatic almost like pixie like quiet to loud freak out you know to be to be going from a quiet song into a, a screamingly loud sort of heavy metal riff with the, the entire audience uh screaming and and uh and it worked really well in the live show but it was exactly the kind of thing that if we even tried to reproduce it on a record, it would never, never hold up. So in some ways, the, the, the formal truth of it is uh, a lot of our impulses, uh, our humor impulses that work live, I think we recognized early on, just didn't really translate uh-huh. that well into, into the show. Whereas, you know, so a, little, a little nickel and dime surrealism probably, uh, you know, works now now john forgive me for for maybe repeating a point but i think i can put it more concisely don't worry but you know when um comparing your your kids songs to your previous songs for non-kids or or at least aimed primarily at adults i guess the let's call them non-kid songs i i I know that's stretching it um are sillier than the kids songs. i i i take i take your point you know i i guess it's just uh I, I feel I feel like uh, you know we 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 smuggled some uh, open-ended joy in there for the kids, but it is it is, uh, it is the preferred veneer of uh, kids' entertainment that it also be good for you. I, I, our very first kids' album, uh, No, was much more on the sort of psychedelic end of things, and I would be happy to get back to that for our next kids' album. You know, one thing about the the kids' albums having these educational themes is. Is it, it makes it, uh, or just having themes, it makes it very easy to sort of figure out how you're going to put the thing together because there's so much, um, there's so much subject matter just in front of you. Like the second you decide, oh, we're going to do a thing, uh, an album about the ABCs, like the entire world of language is, is in front of you again. Um, 
Yeah. Uh, but but you know I, I think you know we're we're happy to make the psychedelic music for kids as well. You know. Mm, mm. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. And, and in fact, you know, uh, whether you're intending an album for adults or for kids, you're going to have a lot of crossover appeal. Uh, and I think your your audience has probably proved that. Am I right? I mean, well, you know, there's audiences are different from one another. You know, there there are people in the front row, and there are people in the middle, and there are people in the back. I think to some of the people who uh, were intrigued by our uh, the, the most ambitious part of our sensibility at the beginning, might be kind of uh, annoyed by the kids stuff. I think it's a lot to ask. You know, I think it's a lot to ask. Um, but uh, who turns out for the Here Comes Science tour? Some of the shows are family shows that are really for children, like small children and their parents. And uh, we, we make a very clear distinction between those shows and the adult shows. Other shows we do are, you know, happen in bars that are, you have to be 21 because they're, they're people smoking pot and, uh, you know, breaking bottles over their heads. And, oh, oh you, the you, you perform Here Comes Science in environments like that? We perform where, uh, wherever we're invited, and the audience gets to be who they want to be. Do you think um, these songs actually teach? I mean, do you think people learn from the songs themselves? or? Well, you don't unlearn I mean, <laughs> from, from them. I mean, they, don't, they're, they're, they, won't, make you, uh, they won't make you dumber. Um, <laughs> and, and, some, and some of them have some pretty interesting information. I think the main thing is that they kind of spark people's imaginations that, you know, the people hear those songs and, they, and they're more curious about the subject matter and, and they're, they're, they're easier ways to find out hard information about the topics than, than um, through songs with lyrics that rhyme. But, uh, you know, I mean, but then again, I mean, for some people, it's, it's a pretty good introduction. Yeah, well, um, I, think, I think it works. We'll play an example of a, a song that definitely packs a lot of information in. That's Bloodmobile. Um, and uh, where we learn all about circulation. So let's listen to that. The Bloodmobile, the Bloodmobile, a delivery service inside us. We begin in the heart's right ventricle and travel to the lungs. Red blood cells get oxygen to take back to the heart. Then from the left side of the heart and out to Now, now that song "Bloodmobile" um, has a has a fair amount of data in it, and um, yeah, that was actually written for a science museum uh, in Baltimore a few years before the science album, so it was for an exhibit. Uh, so it, it, there was a there was a kind of a lot of heavy lifting that the song had to do, uh, just in terms of facts. Um, so it's a little bit different than some some others. But this song gives me an opportunity to plug the fact that your um, your CD it comes with a DVD. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. And it's, it's actually, for a lot of people, it's primarily a DVD, and the songs are just the, the you know, the extra bonus disc of music. And on this DVD, each of the songs um, is you know sung to an animation, an original, and and you know quite. Um, and occasionally awesome. Awesome. Animation. I was going to say yes, all awesome animation. So Bloodmobile, you hear the facts, but you also see uh, animation of blood circulating and doing its thing. So uh, that's a. <laughs> It's an easier way of conveying all that information, both visually and yeah, and I mean, sonically. I think, you know, one of the things that's also been exciting about the past uh, three family projects that we've done is we've had the ability. We've they've all been focused around um, these DVD um, presentations, and so it's kind of like making a television show. Um, writing all this music that you know is going to be animated is uh, it's pretty thrilling, you know. And it's also uh, just getting back to what you're saying about. Um, you know how to present the facts. It adds this sort of layer of entertainment to these fact-based songs that that just make it a lot more fun. You can kind of leave things a little bit more open and know that the animators are going to be able to take it to a different place. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also just connected us to a whole community of of uh, motion graphics people, um, which is a world of of 
real creativity and um, very independent from, uh, you know, kind of the world of fashion and the world of, uh, you know, rock, rock music in general is kind of, you know, the, the world of MTV and record labels and radio stations is this very sort of trendezoidal, nervous world. Um, you know, the motion graphics world is, is uh, kind of happily... Uh, obscure, and, <laughs> and yet people are doing some really interesting work, and it's all—it's basically all kind of homebrew, you know. It's all done on, on people's computers, and and uh, you, you're, you just talk to probably the biggest crew of people was a half dozen, uh, you know, an actual office that had a half dozen employees. But it wasn't like working with big animation houses or something like that, where everything's glacial. Now, um, on the stage show, is there a lot of, um, uh, I imagine, multimedia included? We have almost no multimedia oh, in our oh. stage show. Um, we've actually been sort of lectured by our booking agent that we need to get, get that going a little bit. The only thing we have that's kind of remotely high-tech is we have a, uh, a video camera that actually um, uh, projects a puppet show that we do in the middle of the show. We have these two sock puppets that my wife Robin uh, created, and John and I operate them kind of from the side of the stage. And you can – it's a very uh, – it's very structuralist, very non-illusionistic. You can act, the kids can actually see us, you know, uh, controlling the sock puppets from the side of the stage, and it's got a little light on it. And then it's, you know, blasted across this giant video screen in the middle of the stage. And uh, so it's sort of like uh, our little homage to The Wizard of Oz, I guess. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a very spontaneous part of the show. It's actually funny. We do it. We do... That's one of the parts of the kids' show that has morphed, in, has kind of slid into the adult show. Um, but of course, when the, you know the, when things get a little bit, you know, looser in the midnight ramble that is our adult show, um, the the puppets get a little bit more bawdy, and uh, it, it scares me because with the with YouTube, everything you do is is captured, and uh, I, my fear is you know some mom is going to be sitting with a four-year-old on their lap, and they're going to click on this YouTube video of sock puppets swearing up a storm <laughs> in some bar somewhere. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's the, that's the risk you run when you have the bad boy reputation of they might be giants. <laughs> Adults love the sock puppets. That's the weirdest thing. It's like, you know, the sock puppets are okay for the kids. Like, they're kind of like, okay, yeah, we like sock puppets, okay. But adults love the sock puppets. It's crazy. I mean, they, they get, it gets the biggest response. I feel, I, there are times when I feel like if we just did a sock puppet show for adults, it would, it would be like, it would just transform our whole career. See, it's a topsy-turvy world, John. The kids um, want to grow up and be adult-like, and adults yeah. want to be kids again. And it's like the shags said. <laughs> that gives me, by the way, Sock Puppet mentioned, gives me a chance to compliment your collaborations with uh, the Homestar Runner team. Uh, oh, yeah. Well, that was a totally our, our privilege. You know, um, uh, my wife was really into Homestar and got me a Homestar T-shirt, and then somehow I, w- I guess I was wearing it on stage, and the guys from Homestar became aware that we were fans of theirs and uh, very graciously sort of like let us be part of that whole project. If people, you know, it's Homestar is such a strange, strange phenomenon because for some people it's very, very well known and they know everything about it, and then there are other people who don't know know it at all. There's a highly detailed wiki devoted to every uh, single moment of those oh, yeah, animations. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, it's uh, it's a world unto itself. Um, but you know, Homestar is. Uh, it's it's quite rich, you know, and if you're into non sequiturs, it's 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 all there for you. It seems to have been on hiatus or or to have uh, been put in deep freeze. Uh, yeah, I think they're sort of in semi-retirement. I guess they you know they're talking about creating a television show, oh. um, but not not of Homestar, but of a new project. I suspect that in, in some future time, uh, we will think of Homestar the way uh, we think of Life in Hell. Oh, you mean the the cartoon by Matt Groening? Yes, I thought yes, not that, actual that Life in like, Hell. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's a preamble to something that will... Oh, that will change know. change the world as we know it. Exactly. exactly. Oh, that's an interesting prediction. I'll, I'll stay tuned for that. By the way, uh, many in our audience may not even know what we're talking about. Homestar Rummer, run, excuse me, HomestarRunner.com. <laughs> Homestar Rummer. It's a, it's a distillery. <laughs> Like it uh, was is a world unto itself of, of flash animations uh, consisting of a handful of characters in their their alternative universe. Uh, yeah, and uh, those of us who like it um, 
think very, very highly of it. Um, but, John, i, I got to let you go and get back to your cooking uh, and, and rattling of pots. Uh, <laughs> I, I just wanted to you know, bring this uh, interview full circle. We started with Why Does the Sun Shine, uh, your reprise of a, a song that dates back to, I think, the early 60s or late 50s. Yeah. Uh, and you guys have gone back and sort of updated it and corrected it with a, a new song called Why Does the Sun Really Shine? Yeah. And I think we'll go out on that, but uh, tell me about the process behind this song. Well, the we were actually for wrapping it? up uh, the science album, and we had hired a science consultant um, to help us uh, sort of vet our facts uh, for the album and, and just to keep, keep us from you know, doing every, everything wrong. <laughs> and um, uh, we had not sent him the recording of Why Does the Sunshine because we had been performing it for so long, and because the lyrics were basically from an encyclopedia, we figured that they were true. Um, and then, of course, uh, it was a real uh, lesson in how science does, uh, scientific thought does progress, because I guess from the 60s until now, um, there's been a feeling that the sun is best described as a, as a fourth uh, kind of matter, that it's not solid, liquid, or gas, but it's actually uh, in a permanent state of plasma, um, which is this roiling, bro- roiling, broiling, sun-like uh, um, thing. Now, now, plasma, I could add, not only makes up stars, but also um, the interstellar space is full of plasma. And it tends to be, um, I believe, ionized uh, atoms, that is, atoms that lack uh, a, a sufficient number of uh, electrons to be, to be neutral. Yeah. And uh, here I go, getting nerdy on you. Uh, and, it's and, chaos out there, my friend. Yes, and it's electrically uh, active, um, so it really isn't quite like a stable gas where you have a nice complementary number of electrons and protons making for a neutral atom. That's, that's the definition that I carry around in my head. Well, it's, that is a, a useful thing to know because uh, it will help you understand <laughs> how cavalier we treated the topic in the lyric of this song. To make a, 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 a ridiculously long story short, we... Um, we realized very late in the day after the video was made and the song was recorded for the third time uh, that the song was factually incorrect. And we were just trying to figure out what we should do because obviously to not acknowledge that it was incorrect would be irresponsible. Um, but we also didn't want to just jettison this um, song that had also been specifically requested by the people at Disney because it's such a popular part of our uh, repertoire. So uh, we did what uh, any self-respecting country Western artist would do. We wrote an answer song to ourselves, prompted by our engineer, who's a super science aficionado, who uh, basically kind of off the cuff came up with the chorus hook line of the song. The original song, the chorus is, uh, uh, the sun is a massive incandescent gas. So he said, why don't you write a song called, the sun is a miasma of incandescent plasma. And, um, you know, of course, Miasma is a little bit more of a literary term, but um, it worked, and the song does sort of face the issue. So um, it was uh, it was just a, a fun kind of romp through uh, people's misconceptions about the song. It's not it's not as uh, it's not as tidy as the original song, but it does uh, it does address the the, the fundamental problem. Uh, and it makes a a really uh, central point, which is that science is evolving, and scientists discover that they're wrong, and they change their, exactly. their view. And it's that's what you've done. than you think. Yes. Yeah, so let's end with uh, why does the sun really shine, at least as far as we know at this point. We may need to update it again someday. I'm looking forward to that. All right. Well, John, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to seeing you. Hey, thank you so much. This has been a really uh, interesting and thoughtful interview, better than uh, the uh, where did you get your name kind of interview. <laughs> Not gas, not the 
never morphs into some supernova collapse Or, 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 or The sun is a miasma of incandescent plasma I forget what I was told by myself Elf, elf, elf Plasma Electrons are free Plasma A fourth state of matter, not gas Not liquid, not solid That was John Flansburg of They Might Be Giants. They Might Be Giants are bringing their Here Comes Science show, the family-friendly version, to the Rio Theater in Santa Cruz this coming Friday, August 20th. And for more information, go to riotheater.com. Theater is spelled the fancy way with an R-E on the end. This is the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP Central Coast Public Radio. I'm Robert Polly. And in the second half of the show today, we're going to travel outward from the sun to the orbs that orbit it. Friend of the show, Michael Hurst, joins us to discuss the new CD, Planets, from his band One Ring Zero. Michael is co-leader of the band with Joshua Camp, and uh, the guy does know his solar system. Just listen to him. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus. 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 Neptune, Pluto, if you want. We included it on there, but the song is really about its demotion mm, to becoming exactly. a, dwarf uh, a dwarf planet. Right. Well, we're going to get to Pluto, but we're going to go in order okay. of distance from the sun. Sure. So why don't we hear a little of Mercury right now? Okay. Tell us about this song. Tell us a little bit about this one. Mercury. Uh, it's the first planet <laughs> within our solar system. Yes, yeah, so that we can um, agree on. Musically, it starts off sort of with a uh, Pink Floyd-ish intro. Quick and the colors of a pinball You're pretty sure It's a closed door down the hall And hot enough to melt Your mother's clock on the wall This is uh, Josh Camp singing. That would be Joshua singing, yeah, and uh, kind of the story of uh, a kid who's obsessed with Mercury, basically, um, and uh, how even his friend's sister makes her intentions known, but he, you know, he can't be distracted from his love for Mercury. Yeah, it's very wistful, um, and kind of sad. You know, a lot of this album is sad. A lot of this album is sad. This, the planets are, you know, it's it's space. I think wistful is a good word that you chose. Yeah, uh, and of course that vocal effect. How do you guys make Josh's voice sound like it's talking <laughs> over the phone? Uh, we love this little harmonica microphone, this cheesy little microphone that we, both of us, when we were working at Honer in Richmond, Virginia, collected... Um, and it just has the worst sound ever, and it's perfect. Uh, and then it goes into this Balkan piece. Which eventually returns back to the, the theme, the lyrics, All You Can See is Mercury. Is Mercury. You were referring to, to, to you and Joshua Camp meeting the two, you know, founding members of One Ring Zero. In the now legendary episode, I, I think, uh, you were both college students, right? Working, yes. Working at the Honer Repair Factory in Richmond, Virginia? Right. Do uh, I remember it right? Close. Uh, we had actually graduated from college, and oh, we were okay. looking for jobs, essentially. I mean, Joshua had been working at Honer for a few years, and I bumped into him at a party, and 
asked if there were any other jobs available. I had just graduated. He's a few years ahead of me. And to my delight, there was a harmonica technician position available. So yeah, that's where you know we, we started working at Honer together. And um, quickly realized we both had this love of strange instruments and ethnic musics. And, and that's kind of where the band formed. And you guys, of course, discovered a, a lot of strange things at the Honer Factory, including your signature instrument, the claviola. Yeah. Which I know you've described a thousand times, but you make oh, it a I love, thousand times. I love describing it. Um, it's so much fun to describe. It's, it, it, I always like to uh, say that it looks like a swan that's been run over by a car or something. It's got this one wing that comes off to the side. You wear it like an accordion, mm-hmm. uh, except you blow into a mouthpiece. So it's a lot of people want to quickly say, oh, it's a melodica. It's not a melodica. Mm-hmm. It has a very different sound, much more mellow and smooth and uh, almost like a clarinet. And it's polyphonic, and uh, you're blowing into it. It has reads, and you have a keyboard. Of, it, right, and piano keyboard on the keyboard. right hand, yeah. a vertical keyboard that is, right. uh, and then pipes on the left side, mm. so that you can essentially bend pitches and and make all kinds of crazy sounds. You know, it's like what did I say? The Star Wars, the cantina instrument, something you would see in Star Wars. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it looks like it's from. Off planet. Speaking of off planet, let's go to Venus next. And I don't know if Claviola shows up in this song. Uh, you know, Claviola is in everything. It might be buried, not so noticeable, but uh, you know, the Claviola is always there. Okay, folks, you're going to be hearing Claviola even if you don't know you're hearing <laughs> it. Right. So we're starting off with a little sort of Eastern European-sounding violin played by... Mark Feldman. Very, very fortunate to get Mark Feldman to join us for this album. He is perhaps best known as being the violinist for John Zorn's Masada. But the guy's amazing. He lives in Brooklyn, and uh, so many great stories. One of my favorites is uh, him telling us how he used to tour with Loretta Lynn, and he played on Hee Haw twice. How cool is that, to have played on Hee Haw with Loretta Lynn? Oh, my God. Well, this is no hee-haw here. And, and, and in fact, you guys get to the, uh, the vocal part pretty quick. And it is very reminiscent for me of the Beach Boys. I flew in on a beautiful sunny day. Soon I was covered by clouds. I brought her flowers and pictures of Mars. And then I proclaimed my love out loud. I found my My image of Venus, the Beach Boys would fit right in on Venus. Well, I like I like that. Brian Wilson's a huge inspiration. Uh, but I would say the real uh, inspiration for this song was <clears throat> Electric Light Orchestra. Ah. And, and that's you, Michael, we hear in the foreground. That's uh, me with all kinds of fun effects. Mm. You know, I was trying to make it sound like an astronaut lost on Venus. It's warm, but I'm free to roam. Up in the sky is the blue dot that I have gone This one's kind of sad, too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the idea behind this one, uh, lyrically, was, uh, you know, looking at mythology as well as astronomy. Um, astrology as well as astronomy. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's Venus, who, of course, is a Greek goddess, or a Roman goddess, uh, of love. So there's love in here. Right. Frustrated love. And Venus was supposedly in love with Mars, uh, uh so the idea was I was trying to woo Venus with pictures of Mars. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the, the, the bigger metaphor is just the idea of falling in love with something and then being surrounded by clouds and not being able to escape and feeling like you're trapped. Um, also, and, the surface temperatures enter the picture, too. Yes. I mean, all of it is really a, a big metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> Many days later, the night hadn't fallen. My love for her started to wane. It's hotter than hell, and I can't see a thing, and the pressure is causing great pain. I lost my way. We're trying to bring back the orchestral hit sound in this song that, wank, that, you know, like one of the most ridiculous sounds ever. Um, like so many of your songs, uh, it's just irresistible. It's got, it's, it's so hooky, oh, you know. You. How do, how do melodies occur to you guys? Do they just enter your heads unbidden, or do you, do you have a process? Um, I would not say there's any direct process. In fact, I feel like the way we approach songs varies drastically from song to song. Uh, on occasion, 
we'll write lyrics first and then the music. Other times we do the music first and then the lyrics. Sometimes I write the lyrics, Josh writes the music, vice versa. I mean, it's, we kind of go all over the place, but I think both of us just have a love for melodies and hooks. You guys have a video that goes with this. We do, which was made two years before the album even came out. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, it's sort of the look of it, the color scheme, reminds me of what a 3D movie would look like if you didn't have the glasses. Right. Uh, Arian Nordeman and Christy Wright are the design team who did this, and they're amazing. I'm, it's sort of a funny story. I, One Ring Zero played at Mass Mocha, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Massachusetts, and uh, some, I guess, interns or someone who was working at Mass Mocha had designed this beautiful flyer for our show and I was, this, I was like this is amazing can i meet the the artist who did this and so they brought out uh Arjen nordeman who's a dutch graphic designer and i was like i, I we will work together i, I have uh. no you know so he i actually hired him to do my solo record songs for ice cream trucks and uh and when planets came around we hired him to do that and he did i mean the guy's just amazingly multi-talented did the video websites and to see the video by the way uh listeners can go to one ring zero dot com where can they can learn about this project planets and a lot of the other stuff you guys do exactly um you guys love theme albums we do well, i mean you personally have done songs for ice cream trucks actual songs <laughs> that you played through an ice cream truck that you drove around is this correct well that's not true i, I have sat in ice cream trucks and driven around <laughs> i my original dream was to buy an ice cream truck and tour around the country playing the album and i was like that, that that'll be the tour then I discovered how expensive ice cream trucks are. <laughs> uh, but to my delight, there's, you know, 50-plus ice cream trucks around the country that are now using the album, and it's amazing. I mean, I never— This is true? Yes, yes. Um, you know, it's like— Wait a minute. Okay, there, okay. There were okay. a few surprises that came with this album. One was that it really just took off as a kid's record. I didn't, it sort of was not even my intention. Uh, and all these parents started saying their kids loved it, and they were really responding to the chimey sounds. And But then I started getting contacted by ice cream truck drivers— all over the place who were so thankful. You mean they get to choose their own tunes? Uh, if they are their own private vendors, for the most part, yes. I mean, Mr. Softy in New York, unfortunately, is stuck with the Mr. Softy theme song. However, a lot of newer, younger, uh, independent ice cream vendors have realized, wait, I can just take a CD player or my MP3 player and hook it up to speakers and, and play whatever I want. So there's been, and, and I guess it's kind of amazing if you if you do a Google search for songs for ice cream trucks, you land on me. <laughs> you know, and I realized yeah. when I was working on the album, I Googled it myself, of course, and there was nothing there at the time. Well, we're getting a little away from the theme of the day, which is the planets, but <laughs> uh, that is, uh, that's remarkable. I was thinking of you guys and the way you choose, you know, sort of themes to, to organize your, your song making. Um, you yourself have done songs for Newsworthy News. This is songs, very short songs, based right. on the day's headlines. Right. Uh, songsfornewsworthynews.com. Right. Is that right? Yeah, I haven't really kept up with that one, but yeah. That you guys was... had a project about doing recipes? Still uh, working on that. Songs uh, based on recipes? Well, this one is just, it's going to be called, this is a One Ring Zero project. It's called The Recipe Project. Very clever title. And that comes out next year as a book mm. with a CD. And it's all, we're actually getting uh, all of our favorite chefs to contribute recipes, which we set uh, to music and sing word for word. Mm. It's one of the most difficult things we've ever done. Well, you know, they say that the chefs are the rock stars of our era now, so that's, that makes perfect sense. That's it, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, um, there was, of course, your very famous project, As Smart As We Are. Uh, you guys contacted well-known writers, contemporary writers, who wrote lyrics. You set them to music. Right. You know? So you guys have been doing themes a lot. The, my question is this. Are the themes just an excuse to produce music, or do they really shape the way you make music? A little bit of both. I mean, I'm always looking for an excuse to make music. <laughs> I mean, hey, if I need an excuse. Um, no, I, 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 uh, so there are several things, me personally, that, you know, why I decided I want to go to music school and become a musician. I mean, and Hulse the Plants was one of them. Uh, Camille ah. Sansan's Carnival of the Animals was one of them. Um, I love themes. You know, I love sort of concept projects or program mm -hmm. music. Mm-hmm. Always have. Um, and, you know, our last One Ring Zero record really wasn't theme-based. No. We, we do part from that on occasion. And, and our, no, I didn't mean to suggest you always do things. No, but we—well, then here's the thing is, is uh, without a doubt, concept albums get more press. Um, I'm not sure press necessarily equals sales. It's, you know, I would like to think so, but I've been proven wrong several times ever. But— uh, 
you know, it's, it's fun. I love, I love having something to lock in on and, mm. and focus on. And, and it's almost like you're setting barriers or, or param- perimeters, to, parameters, 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 parameters to work within. Um, you mentioned Sensal and the Carnival of the Animals. This is, uh, you're alluding to your, your current project, Songs for Unusual Creatures. Right. Which is songs, you know, dedicated to some of Earth's most unusual critters. Right. Um, but back to the planets. I thought maybe we could go to uh, Jupiter next. Sure. Yeah. Can we skip Earth and Mars? I mean, you can do whatever you okay. like. Okay. We're yeah. going to go to Jupiter. So in this one, in Jupiter, uh, after this really nice um, driving baseline and, and pizzicato opening, we get some uh, actual astronomical information right. for a change. Only ten hours in a day. That's the truth on Jupiter, if you were in Jupiter. This gigantic planet does a complete rotation in ten hours. It's moving. It's moving really fast. Yeah. This song is, I'd say, heavily influenced by... Adam Hartmother, early Pink Floyd again. We mm. just both of us love that sort of um, quiet, uh, ambient, droney thing, and mm. then all of a sudden blasting in with this brass uh, arrangement. Yeah, brass is really prominent on this album. It's a wonderful part, especially in the choruses and instrumental breaks. We get some great trumpet and uh, trombone and some other instruments as well. Ben Holmes, our trumpet player, we made sure to give him more of a spotlight with this album. I mean, the guy's just fabulous and just keeps getting better and better. So uh, this is a great chance to, and I feel like brass really is planetary in many ways, that sound. Um, we also have Jacob Garchik uh, playing tuba. He also plays trombone and many brass instruments, but for this album we have him on tuba and then Curtis Hasselbring on trombone. Both of other other bands normally, yep. yeah. Um, you know, all three of them have played with Slavic Soul Party, which is mm. kind of part of our family of barbesque bands mm. in Brooklyn, New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think any of them are playing with Slavic Soul Party at this point, but that was the sound we wanted. We wanted a Slavic Soul Party sound, so we got friends of ours who played in Slavic Soul Party. <laughs> Slavic Soul Party on Jupiter, and you know, I got to say, it's not just Jupiter; it's the whole album that I would call jovial. Well, thank you. Jovial's good. I like it. Brass. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, your music is funny. I mean, you wouldn't take that as an insult, would no, you? No, no, no. I mean, no. I, I have a sense of humor. <laughs> and it, it comes through in almost all your songs. Yeah. But do you ever resist the urge to be funny and just want to make people cry? Yeah, and I feel like, you know, if there is an audience for our some of our music, it's... Uh, <laughs> if there is an audience for some of our music... <laughs> I feel like uh, our fan base might be the type of people who laugh and cry at the same time, <laughs> you know, and, and which is kind of quite often me. So it's... I wonder if they can also eat while laughing and crying. And they could, but then you'd have to be Heimlich maneuver ready. <laughs> and you're listening to the 7th Avenue Project on KUSP. I'm Robert Polly, and I'm talking to Michael Hurst of the band One Ring Zero, about their new CD, Planets. Next stop, the seventh planet. Uh, Uranus, uh, which I believe is the proper pronunciation. Rick Moody wrote the lyrics for this one, and your old friend and collaborator. <laughs> yes, we've you know we've of of the whole literary project, we took Rick and have run with him. He's uh, kind of almost a um, honorary member of the band at this point. Yeah, Rick Moody, the. Um the well-known novelist and um, also a musician. He plays guitar, writes songs. Keyboard. Keyboard. Yeah, he's got his own group, the Wingdale Community Singers, and he's also, uh, I think he's gearing up to release a solo album. Um, a very talented guy, and, you know, when we were working with all the writers, he was sort of the one that, that stuck out and that we continued collaborating with, and a large part of that is because he is uh, a musician. Mm-hmm. Um, and a great lyricist, aside from being a writer. So we thought it'd be fun to have him write lyrics for one of the plants, and, and he chose Uranus. Uh, and actually, he sent us, originally the lyrics were incredibly long. We, you know, we told him that we were kind of thinking of doing a, a prog rock album. We wanted to go back to the 70s. and So he gave us two pages of lyrics, which uh, we 
sort of cut down to two paragraphs, <laughs> you know, or two two choruses, I guess. Let's listen to a little bit of the, the singing here. And who's singing? Both of us are. Both Actually, everybody. And, Josh. And, and Rick. And Rick. Rick's yeah. on this, too. So I should say that this, this uh, vocal section is preceded by a really elaborate lead-up with multiple instrumental changes until uh, we finally get to the lyrics here. talking about uh so yeah the song uh after this long instrumental section and the world's most ridiculous drum fill goes into the chorus which is sky king star sky king star from afar you are blue like the heart of an astronomer who could not be true sky king star sky king star did you diminish his guilt and his scientific woes with your axial tilt well, you know, I, I think maybe we could say of, of this song, um, Uranus, um, what could be said of, of many of the songs in this, which is, you, you can leave the earth behind, but you can't get away from yourself. The, these songs are all written from the point of view of earthlings, essentially. Yeah, I guess you can't get away from that. So. <laughs> yeah. You know, one thing, uh, again, I notice about your, your music, about your oeuvre, if I can use that term, is um, you guys are really good at, at that transition between verse and chorus. You like to, mm. I mean, you like to sort of bait the trap with, with, with the verse, and then the chorus just, like, snaps it shut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, again, I mean, I, we both just have a love for, for melody and songwriting in the in sort of the more classic rock sense of, of verse chorus mm-hmm. um i mean not always but you know it's such a fun thing to to do that to set the bait and and let the trap snap i mean it's <laughs> like i mean the master of that of course is black francis of the pixies who's mm. you know the and also the quiet loud sort of thing and um it, it's it's the uh yin to the yang um, let's listen to Pluto now. The uh, theme here is Pluto's recent, um, as you say, demotion. Yes. From planet to dwarf planet. Right. Too small to be a planet. The International Astronomical Union decided that uh, Pluto was not really worthy of the status planet. Um, and upon hearing this news, uh, we, we wrote the song, which then became the concept for the entire album that started with this song. We got this um, opening section, which has um, theremin, mm-hmm. many theremins. Theremin, outer space, a musical instrument of outer space. Yes, there's probably four or five theremins in there playing in octaves and and even harmonizing. And yet you only have two hands. Right. Well, that's the beauty of multi-tracking on, on a computer. <laughs> and now we have the lyrics, which are kind of bittersweet. Pluto and its recent status change. They even found out that Pluto isn't even the largest of the dwarf planets. Right. No, there's all these others. Eris and... Eris is bigger. Yeah. Yeah, so Pluto's not what it used to be. You know, um, it's kind of interesting because when Gustav Holst did his uh, song cycle, he did not include Pluto because it hadn't been discovered mm. yet. Mm. Um, 
And in fact, he was alive when Pluto was discovered and was asked if he wanted to write Pluto. And he said no, because he was so disenchanted with the planets, his song cycle by then. It had, uh, to use the word dwarf again, it had dwarfed all his other compositions and, and orchestras. You know, he was like, pay attention to my other music. Exactly. People were always requesting it. I think someone else did write a movement for Pluto, which is kind of strange. Let me add a movement to your, <laughs> your song cycle. Um, but yeah, so we, we included it uh, against many astronomers' wishes. brings us to the blurb from the world's coolest astrophysicist, <laughs> right. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yes. Which, can you recite the blurb from memory? Was enjoying One Ring Zero's album until a track titled Pluto came on. What's up with that? <laughs> so we made it stickers out of it and put them on all the CDs. Um, originally we were trying to get him to write some lyrics, but uh, I think this might be better than lyrics. Well, Michael, we're about out of time, but I did want to give you a chance to reintroduce one of the planets I skipped, because you seem particularly fond of this piece. This is the second half of your Mars suite. This is the instrumental portion. Tell us about it. Well, Mars Part 2 is, is, was a lot of fun to put together. We actually, uh, this is the one song that gives a nod to Gustav Holst at the very end played on Glockenspiel is is the melody from Hulse Mars uh, Bringer of War the and then we found an actual sample of the Phoenix probe making its landing on Mars and it's this sort of high-pitched almost whistling that continues to get higher and higher in pitch as it's getting closer to the surface. Mm. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> the phoenix has landed. That was Michael Hurst of One Ring Zero. And you can learn more about their CD, Planets, and their other projects at OneRingZero.com. And you can learn more about this radio show at SeventhAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly, your host. I'll be back in One Earth Week, Sunday at noon. Mm-hmm.